Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's podcast where we dived into some spies articles on misinformation. My name's Victoria. My name's John. Hi, I'm Natalie. So this week we learned a lot about disinformation and misinformation. Disinformation being false information spread on purpose and misinformation being false information spread non-intentionally. I think we see this a lot in today's society and with technology being so huge. And social media, I think, is the biggest way that this is spread. What do you guys think? Yeah, Victoria, I definitely agree with you. Over the course of the past five years on social media, we definitely have seen the term fake news come up all the time regarding sports, politics, and anything else in pop culture. So just that term alone, I think, really has an association with misinformation and disinformation. Natalie, what did you think of misinformation and disinformation? I also have seen misinformation and disinformation everywhere. I mean, we can even talk about how politicians promoted disinformation about the legitimacy of the election. Right. I'm not, I'm not super political. But I know it does come up in politics a lot. Even scrolling through Twitter now, you could see certain tweets get flagged for potentially being misinformation. So I think it's interesting how social media is tending to quote tweets that could potentially lead to misinformation or spreading false information. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the way that it's used, obviously we see it. I think a lot in politics, but it almost makes you question people's judgments. You know, are they purposely spreading it? Are they not purposely spreading it? And they're doing it for their own vendetta, which sometimes benefits them and sometimes it does not end up benefiting them, which I think is really interesting to see. And just to play a little devil's advocate here, obviously social media should promote the truth, but on the contrary, people could say free speech, people have their free will to say what they want on the internet, whether it's true or whether it's not true. So I feel like that's really the counter argument to misinformation and disinformation. People can say what they want. I mean, this is the United States of Americans. Right, and I would say like with misinformation and disinformation, misinformation, even though it's accidental, it tends to cause harm. And whereas disinformation is actually trying to target specific populations and mobilize their allies. So when we're talking about opinion versus freedom of speech, is it okay to cause people harm and promote harmful acts towards others, even if it's accidental or purposeful? Yeah, it almost goes back to like elementary school where you're learning, you know, words are going to obviously hurt other people no matter what you say. But is what you're going to say the truth or is what you're going to say false just to get yourself ahead? So are you going to think about yourself or are you going to think about others? Right. And I also wanted to kind of touch base on what an opinion is. I think we need to actually not think of truth is always an opinion or truth and false is always an opinion. An opinion, say, is for flat earthers, an opinion is not that the earth is flat. That's not an opinion. That's just misinformation and in some cases disinformation. So because misinformation is not a fact, I feel like we should step back. Are opinions fact or are they misinformation? So Natalie, I feel like that definitely ties in to an ideological echo chamber as well as a filter bubble. So an ideological echo chamber, first of all, an ideology is a belief, a shared belief that a certain group of people have in life, typically referring to politics, 
but an ideological echo chamber refers to a conversational arena in which people discuss politics, current events, but they're only exposed to opinions that mirror their own. So they have some sort of shared opinion in the ideological echo chamber. So an example for this that I thought of right off the bat are on Facebook when people create a group on Facebook. So usually the group is like, I'm just making this up, like Long Island Republicans or Long Island Democrats and shared people of that same group are expressing their political views and their beliefs on current topics. And a problem with this, in my opinion, is that people in these groups are only exposed to opinions that mirror their own. And I've noticed that even on television and in life, people will watch people on the news who have similar beliefs to their own and they're not being exposed to counter arguments. So I'm just wondering what the two of you, what your experiences with uh, echo chambers have been. So what I was thinking was like when you were talking about how groups, I think that was a really good example on how you kind of pick and choose who is invited to the group. You even have to pick on who's actually even able to see the group privacy settings and everything like that. You can be a hidden Republican, for instance, you know, and no one will know because it's a hidden group. And I also wanted to talk about trench warfare, which is media users encounter opposing arguments and like-minded ones, but those oppositional encounters tend to reinforce their existing attitudes. What this kind of made me think of was when you're like on Facebook or something and you encounter a certain type of post, maybe it could be a sexist post or, or anything kind of, or seemingly meaningless, but it has hidden prejudices or something like that. Then you'll encounter multiple different ideologies throughout and viewpoints throughout the comment section, whether they agree with you or they don't. You know, but usually in the comment section, you won't change anybody's opinion. And they might even use what you're saying, even if it's based off fact or not based off fact, as a way to say they're right or wrong. So the user-driven aspect of it is really what is manifesting in the internet. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that too, a lot of what we've seen in the past year, which is normal, I just think that it has blown up a lot, is that people are so, you know, on one side or the other. And if you're not with us, you're against us. And that's where these, you know, echo chambers and filter bubbles really come in. And I think it's really interesting because when we're talking about misinformation and disinformation, you know, they could be siding with something that's not even completely true. They're just seeing it for what they see it for, and they're taking an opinion, and it's kind of like, well, if you're going to go against me, then I don't like you, which is very interesting to see in the world around us because I feel like it's kind of exploded, really, in the past year with that kind of opinion or way of thinking, and I think that people also don't feel the freedom to even really share their own opinions that much because of that idea, if you're not with me, you're against me. So people aren't standing up for what they might think because they might be actually put down for not thinking the same way. I just want to comment on something really quickly that Natalie said, referring to the user-driven environment on social media. That was really a great point because when users go on Facebook, they choose the pages they like, they choose the groups they belong to. Nobody's choosing that for them. Just like when you sit on the couch at night, you're going to choose the political commentary you decide to watch. So I feel like at home, you pick the news commentators you'd like to listen to. 
same thing on social media. You're going to pick the groups and pages that you're going to like. Yeah, and I think that a good social media, so obviously we do this on Facebook, we do it on every social media, but one that's been super prevalent in this past year is TikTok. And I thought that TikTok was so interesting because it's kind of user-driven and it is system-driven as well. Everyone's trying to figure out the algorithm so that their stuff ends up on people's For You pages. But at the same time, when you like things and you actually have the option to like press down on the screen and say, I'm not interested in this video. So you're kind of making your own For You page, but at the same time, people that have these prevalent profiles on TikTok are constantly trying to figure out, okay, what's the algorithm that's getting my videos onto the For You page so that they can make money off of it? So I think it's kind of even a little bit of a controversial application that you see both happening where I'm not sure that's happening on a lot of the other social medias like Facebook. Well, we can talk about Instagram and we can talk about YouTube and stuff like that. Those are kind of like also how do you promote yourself? How, what will make me stand out from the crowd? You know, what will amplify my voice? You know what I mean? And even though, I, like, I totally agree, there is system-driven aspects of it. And as you said, like, with search engines and stuff like that, it utilizes data. But that, what I would say is, like, that data is already put in by the user. So I'm assuming you have to actually put it in first. And then the algorithm sort of might bring you to um, a place because you've already searched it. Right. And really, to wrap that up, the algorithms that predict you know, what users will prefer based on their internet usage. So for example, the For You page is the concept of a filter bubble. Well, speaking of social media, I wanted to talk about um, spies, including the quote, the guesses quote, the danger is not that all of us are living in echo chambers, but that a subset of the most politically engaged and vocal among us are. So this was kind of making me like consider what is the equivalency between left and right wing groups and also who is the most susceptible to misinformation and disinformation? Spies states multiple times how the right is more likely to promote misinformation and right-wingers are more likely to promote false news. In the article, it talks about registered Republicans were more likely than Democrats to share misinformation. Far-right pages contributed the most to the spread of junk, of junk news. It also talks about how like the rise of far-right parties is instilling fear that violence will be committed offline. And so I will agree, yes, that it is because of kind of like politicians like fear-mongering and disinformation causes something devastating as say the insurrection of the Capitol, but that is because of the politicians are commodifying off of the deeply seated issues already within our society. So I definitely so I think that there's been an element of fear-mongering and I think it's definitely been on both sides of the aisle, but I think the political climate right now is just not good at all. There's a very strong divide between the left and the right right now. And with social media and echo chambers and filter bubbles, which we've talked about thus far, it's almost added like fuel to the fire. Whereas in the late 20th century, we could have normal conversations with people, whether you're out in a restaurant or just watching a political debate on TV. But today, with that added element of social media, it has allowed so many people to converse about the topic. And I think this has really added fuel to the fire in terms of the political climate right now. 
Yeah, and I think to address your question, Natalie, about who is more vulnerable to misinformation or disinformation, I'm pretty sure that they mentioned that older people or the older generation is more vulnerable. And I think that's interesting because I thought the complete opposite before reading it. I feel like what they're saying by more vulnerable is that older people just don't know how to use the technology. So when it comes to social media, they might see something and believe it because they don't know their ways about social media. But I actually think that the younger generation is a little bit more vulnerable because I think that they're so fast to jump on some of the things that they see. And while they're great detectives, I think that everyone in the younger generation, including the three of us, we've become such great detectives on the internet, but I think our first instinct is to kind of jump to believe exactly what we see is the truth. When meanwhile, it could be a complete lie. I think that's an interesting point because especially like in elementary school now, we talked about earlier in the semester in our class is one of the standards I think for elementary education is to teach kids what they should believe and how to fact check information they receive on the internet. So I think that's an interesting point you bring up, Victoria, because that is something that is an elementary standard Um, as far as digital media skills in the 21st century. Just to jump off of what John said about the younger kids, I think the younger kids, what's interesting is that they're below that line of 18. I think 18 to 25 is where you're finally starting to become, you know, a little bit of adult. Whereas when you're younger than 18, you kind of believe what you see. It's almost bringing it back, you know, John, you're in elementary school. I teach high schoolers and they are so fast to jump to whatever they hear. You know, it's like the rumor that's spread throughout school. And as far as we've been discussing politics and social media, I think this leads into a nice transition into what's going on right now in the world with COVID-19 and the information that's being put out about COVID-19 on the internet. So I came across a very interesting source on Twitter. It was an article from The Hill titled, Twitter labeled post with vaccine misinformation. And Twitter found that they had to identify 8,400 tweets that came from approximately 11.5 million users who either retweeted the tweet or engaged with the tweet about information related to the upcoming COVID-19 vaccines. So currently there's three vaccines. There's a Pfizer vaccine, a Moderna vaccine, and a Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine. So the issue that Twitter is having is that many people are going on to Twitter and saying that they are either not comfortable with the vaccines or spreading information that these vaccines are not safe at the moment. And many health experts are stating that the vaccines are in fact safe. My personal opinion, I think it's way too early to say whether or not these vaccines are safe at the moment, just because we haven't seen the long-term effects. So it's hard to say whether or not you should get one or not. But as far as putting that information on the internet, Twitter will be labeling posts that state that the vaccines are unsafe because it is to the contrary to what public health experts are saying at the moment. So I thought this article was so interesting because the coronavirus obviously probably is the most relevant thing that's been just reoccurring for the entire past year. 
And the thing with the coronavirus is I think there's been, in general, misinformation or disinformation spread about the virus and now the vaccines that they've come out. Even I was susceptible to it when it first came to be a thing. I found myself, you know, Googling, is this going to happen if I get the coronavirus? And not enough information at the time when it was starting to really happen was out there to really say exactly how you were going to get it, what you were going to get. And still to this day... I mean, I think that we know the general signs of it, but we don't always know. Like John said, I don't think there's enough information. Me, I actually am recently vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. I trust the healthcare and I feel like that's safe. I think that it's interesting, though, that Twitter is taking away tweets that are saying that it's unsafe because there have been news stories out there about side effects that people have had. For me personally, I think that the side effects that I got weren't as bad as maybe some other people are getting. I think that overall what Twitter is doing is taking away the panic from the public. But what we were saying at the beginning, that takes away almost freedom of speech. So what's the right way to go about it? I guess when we're going back to sort of like what is what is opinion and what is truth and how can you trust what an opinion is and how can you trust what truth is if public professionals are saying this is safe and this is public professionals doctors and everything like that i would most likely be that is safe and this kind of goes back into what i remember reading in the article which is that if we take away that trust in doctors, if we take that away that trust and look at doctors, the public health system, and if we take that trust away, then we're left with not trusting healthcare. We're left with not trusting professionals. That distrust is spread through social media. So should we trust the vaccination or should we not trust the vaccination? For instance, there might be something like the vaccination causes Bell's palsy for instance, um, after you do the vaccination. And I was like, oh my gosh, what the heck is Bell's palsy? And so when I actually found this out and I looked it up, it was like a small percentage was caused by the vaccine, but then that same percentage was caused in people who got the flu vaccination. And that kind of goes back to user-driven. Do you trust the vaccination from what is being exposed to you through system-driven? Or is it going to be user-driven? You don't care what you're exposed to. And you're like, okay, this is cool, but actually I don't trust this because of my own other things, because of this other information. I completely agree with you. And I think the Bell's palsy thing was a really good example because that was the one, I think, big worry in the public. And I think it just amplified everything. I'm a math teacher. I know John is also a math teacher. I approach everything very statistically and I look at the odds. I'm like, what are the odds that that's going to happen to me when I take the vaccine? For me, I think about it rationally and I say, hey, it's probably one in a million trillion. And like you said, Natalie, it's happened to people that got the flu. So it doesn't really make me worried, but for someone that's not looking at it from that perspective, the automatic thought is, oh my goodness, that's going to happen to me. So it's a panic that ensues. And when you get panic from one person and it goes from the next person to the next person to the next person, then you have public panic between a majority of people. And that's 
is never going to work out nicely. Right. Like, this COVID vaccine causes Bell's palsy. Like, as big headlines, whatever it was. As a person, I was reading that. I was terrified. And I am very pro-science. And I was terrified, but I was like, let me step back and let me see flu vaccinations. Let me compare them. But it wasn't easy for me to find this information. I had to do research. I had to look it up and, like, try to figure it out. What's this? What's that sort of kind of aspect? But not everybody's willing to do that. That's, I think, the problem with social media is we can post anything, but we don't need to cite our sources. So people who are disingenuous could be promoting disinformation and therefore amplifying issues that don't need to be amplified. Right. Definitely some good points made, I guess. To find the true results of the vaccination, we'll have to look, like Victoria said, at statistics to come from it and probably in the next three to five years. But anyhow, I did really enjoy doing this podcast with the two of you today. Thank you so much, guys. This was great. Thank yeah, you for, for sure. making some fantastic points. Thank you all for tuning into our show, Spies Shows Lies, Misinformation and Citizen Control. Have a great day and stay safe. <laughs>